Hello, this is Kristen McDonald, and welcome to Second Vision. My guest today, award-winning journalist Patricia Pearson, is an author, journalist, and professional certified integral coach working with clients to deepen their understanding of what drives them to reframe narratives around grief and to find voice and clarity in writing. Her books include Opening Heaven's Door, What the Dying May Be Trying to Tell Us, and Wish You Were Here, A Sister's Murder, A Brother's Quest, and The Hunt for a Serial Killer. And she's here today to discuss a phenomenon called nearing death awareness. How are you, Patricia? I'm so delighted to have you on the show. Thank you, Kristen. I'm glad to be here. Dialing in from Canada, my my birthplace. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So why don't we tell the listeners a bit, it's so fascinating, about the catalysts, you know, that acted uh, to motivate you to write this book. You know, a little bit of of your history about your your beautiful sister and your father and the reason why you wrote this book, which I couldn't put down, by the way, to everyone listening. Oh, good. Thanks for saying that. I, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it started because, um, like, my background as a journalist, I, I, I hadn't done anything about sort of, you know, spiritual um, stuff, but I, I had done a lot as a journalist about human psychology and um, written a book about anxiety, for, for instance. And in 2008, my sister was dying of breast cancer. I was very close to her. And my father found out that she... Um, was terminal and, you know, was the point at which the doctor announced that it had spread to her brain. And um, his response basically was to die of a broken heart. So he was a healthy 80-year-old man, but all of a sudden he died in the middle of the night. And the night Mm. that he died, my sister was awake in her house um, in another city in Canada, in Montreal, and um, she suddenly became aware of a presence in her bedroom, um, and she began to sense um, hands gently cupping the back of her head, and she found herself kind of infused with feelings of peacefulness um, and and contentment and even elation, which, of course, she hadn't felt in a long time because she was so scared about her breast cancer. Um, and Terrifying, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. right? And and this went on for a couple of hours in the night. It was like she was like, "Whoa, like what's going on? Why am I why am I feeling this way?" And um the next morning she found out that our father had died. And so to her, even though this was something she'd never thought about in her life, it it it, it was just absolutely obvious to her that dad had died and gone to her to reassure her. Um and then she died 9 weeks later. And um when I remember reading the account with her eulogy, you know, at, at the church and how she didn't make yeah. any excuses about, uh, you know, that, well, you, you may not be a believer, but she just, she was so definitive about what she had felt, you know, it just gave me a chill exactly. when I read it again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like for our family, that was really powerful because none of us were um, religious people. None of us had really ever talked about spiritual phenomena. We just, we just were a totally secular family. So so when Catherine stood at Dad's memorial service in front of, I think there were like 500 people there, and just unapologetically said, my father came to me in the night. Um, you know, it was just an um, extraordinary thing. And, it, uh, you know, so that became my first question was, what was that? What was that sense right. of this experience? And then, and then when she was dying in hospice, um, 
um, there were 10 days that she was in hospice and I was with her, my other siblings and my mom, and we were all with her. She sort of began to go into this kind of place of incredible, um, uh, graceful, um, mm, not bliss exactly, but like, um, she, she seems very happy and because I had been so close to her and I, I was used to her telling me how she was feeling, but now she'd gone beyond words. And so I needed to understand why Catherine was in that state. She was dying, but it didn't bother her at all. And on the contrary, she was, she was uh, watching things on the ceiling of the hospice room with great interest that, that we couldn't see. She was talking about journeys, talking about when does the plane leave, um, now they all you know, talk about. Sorry, we'll get into this more later. But about their train tickets or where their shoes, right? I mean, there's accounts of that. You you talk about in the book with people who are about to die. Right. So that's what I found. So after after Catherine died, then I went on to this mission of trying to figure out what I'd seen, and I found out that uh, according to hospice nurses and palliative care physicians and so on, it's actually extremely common for the dying to start talking about journeys. Um, and they're not being like, they're not trying to soften the blow to you that they're dying. They're actually like preoccupied with like, you know, when does the bus leave? Or I need to go shopping. Or, I found that fascinating. Yeah, right? Where are my shoes? I mean, there was account after account in your book about people, you know, uh, stating that they, they knew they were going someplace. They knew they were going someplace. And, and, and it's really, I found that, like, once I had discovered that and talked about it in the book, it became really helpful to a lot of my friends because, you know, they realized that they would hear this from their dying loved one in the hospice and that they didn't have to argue with them. They didn't have to say, no, Dad, you don't need your shoes, or no, Mom, we're not going home. You have to stay in the hospice. They realized that they didn't have to have those kind of conversations because the dying person was not saying Literally, I need my shoes. They were saying, you know, I'm, I gotta go. Amazing. Now, there's so many different forms. At least that was my impression of these sort of spirits and near death experiences. Can you? I mean, I experienced so much, so many in dreams. You and I discussed it when we met in person, and and um, that's that's another story because I don't want to digress. But do you think those are visitations from? from people who have passed or are there other there are other sightings in your book about presence just like your sister experienced or people on hikes where they they feel a third person and they even make a meal for them but they're not there or sailors where someone took over and sailed the boat for them so can you explain some of them the difference or are some of these just in our subconscious yeah, you think are they're really now you're a believer <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that what you what you begin to realize is, well, first of all, so I, the first thing I was looking at was the presence that people experience around somebody dying. And right. it can be in dreams, and it can be, um, it can even be like a visual. I, I talked to one woman who was walking down the street, and she saw her uncle going down into the subway station, and she was like, wait, he, I thought he was in a long-term care home. Like, why, how is he walking and going to the subway? Oh, and my goodness. She, she got home and discovered that he had died in, in that afternoon. So there's a lot of uh, people have a lot of experiences with that kind of in the moment of somebody dying elsewhere, um, yes. having either a dream or a visual or an auditory experience yes. hearing a name called. But then what I, 
what I started looking at was the fact that these sense presences can also occur when people are in peril or um, in some kind of extreme environment. Mm-hmm. So it turned out, as you were saying, it turned out that this is not uncommon for um, sailors lost at sea or people hiking in high in the Himalayas um, and finding themselves in a blizzard. Um, or 9-11, you mentioned that in the book. 9/11. Some of them were, yeah. They were, yeah, had a presence going down the stairs. And you think, well, what uh-huh. happened to the rest of those people? Where were their relatives? Why didn't they help? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, there's so many questions around it. And, of course, there's so little funding for the research on this subject because it's not supposed to happen in our rational scientific world. So no. we can't, you know, it's taboo. We, can't, we can't research it. Like, it's, it's, it's so frustrating because it's so fascinating and it happens to so many of us. And there's so little research. Um, going into it. And why do you, why so do you think a, that is? What? Because they just think it's, you know, like aliens, right? I mean, that they just don't believe us and they don't believe in spirit and don't believe that that could be possible. Yeah, like somehow we've got ourselves into a position where if, if it can't be proved by science, then it can't exist. But because we decided it doesn't exist, we're not going to try to prove it by science. Right. Like it's a right. We're in a weird place right now where we've got mm-hmm. all of these people having these experiences, not being able to talk about them in case they're told that they're being irrational or crazy. Um, and, and it's like a suppressed part of the culture almost, you know? Oh, yeah, um, because I've had the dream so long since the time I was sick. My sister and I were talking about it yesterday. since so I was about 10 years old that she, people, my friends say to me, please don't dream about me because I might pop off, you know, because I <laughs> I know. I actually have that same thing. I've got a friend who she she sees a visual around people who are um, terminally ill, and so every time I see her, I kind of flinch, right? <laughs> right. Like, Don't see anything around me. Exactly. <laughs> Don't look at my aura, please. Don't let me know if there's another presence in the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So funny. Um, well, how how is this? And firstly, I'm so sorry for your loss. I, I mentioned this when we did meet in person. And I am so sorry for both of your losses. In fact, before we go on, you might want to tell some of the listeners, some of our American listeners, um, about your fascinating background. Your your grandfather was the prime minister of Canada, Lester Pearson, yeah. so fascinating. And um, and your dad, a, a, a diplomat, your mother a senator, I got it right? <clears throat> yeah, that's right. My father was the ambassador to Moscow. Um and my mother was a senator, a Canadian senator. Oh, boy. It's a good thing he's gone and he can't see what's happening now. Oh, my God. My mother is so upset about what's going on in Ukraine. She must be. My God. It's just driving her crazy. She's so upset about it. I can but imagine. Past, yeah. But this past weekend was the anniversary of Catherine's death, actually. So she oh, and I <clears throat> went up to the cemetery where where both my grandfather, Leslie Pearson, and my father and my sister are buried. And actually, one of the things that's kind of, this is going to sound ridiculous, but one of the things that's kind of um, nice about having a a grandfather who was famous is that um, their graves are very well, like, people, people pay attention to his grave. So we go up there and we find, like, like little stones left on it and flowers and, so oh, just, beautiful. They're not abandoned, you know. They're no, no. Yeah. So beautiful. I mean, but what one if, of the things that I mm-hmm. wanted to say, Chris, that I, that was so interesting for me in researching this book was that 
um, I, I started interviewing people who had near-death experiences because I wanted to understand where my sister's consciousness might have gone yes. beyond the point where she could explain it to me. And, and so talk to people who've gone that that distance and come back and can tell me. And And for your listeners, one of the things that's really interesting is the number of people who have had these near-death experiences where they, they were either blind from birth or when the when the experience happened, they had their eyes completely covered, like they were in um, in a hospital with with uh, one of them uh, was put into a into a deep um, like fro- not frozen, but she was her her whole body was cooled way down so that they could do an aneurysm operation on her brain, and they'd completely covered her eyes and completely covered. Um, her uh, ears as well. She had like um, plugs in her ears. And yet in these experiences, they had sight. So they, they came out of their body. They experienced themselves coming out of their body and they could see fully the room around them, the, the, the doctors, what the doctors were wearing, what they were doing, what instruments they were using in the operation. Isn't um, that fascinating? And that's fascinating, right? It's like, what, what does that tell us about our capacities um, that our minds can regain some kind of sensory ability yes. when it's disentangled yes. from our bodies? Well, you know, I have a, wholly, a, a whole different life, as my sister says, because when I go to sleep, I can see in my dreams. And, you know, right. as I've lost part of my sight. Some of the faces are sometimes etched out. My, like my mother's face will be etched out in the center. And then I'll see her full face, you know. But it's my brain remembering, you know, what things look like. But I, but I see it's like technicolor when I go to sleep. It's amazing. Wow. So it's like part of the time you have vision impairment, but then every night yes. you get to go back. To yes, and then I see all these people who have died or who are about to die or <laughs> even a, a, someone I dated when I was around 29 years old, hadn't thought about him in years and years, and I kept dreaming about him. There, I looked it up, and he had—he was a professional stuntman. He had died just, you know, a month or two ago. So someone was trying to tell me he died. You know, I just yeah. think things of that sort. You know, so so tell us about uh, caregivers often experience this same phenomenon. Is, is that true? I guess because they're around the the dying so much. You mean like the shared death experience? Yes. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. So actually, there's somebody in California. I can't remember. I'll, I'll look it up and send it to you. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But he he actually done does weekend um, workshops on on this experience because he had it. And it's in a shared this experience. You can be with somebody when they're dying, and they will go into basically like the beginnings of what we call a near death experience for them. It's going to be the death, and the people that are with them sort of experience an element of that like they they see the light that the person is seeing or they hear the music the person is hearing or they 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 well I'll give you an example actually I was just talking to a woman last week who um she wasn't with her friend she was at home um but she do she fell asleep and she dreamt of her friend standing with her back to her in a doorway and looking out at this incredible, calm, um, loving light and sort of hesitating, like, was she going to go through the doorway or not? And then the next morning, she 
got the phone call that her friend had died. And actually, the nurse said that when she died, she the nurse found her lying in her bed with her eyes open, with her arm um, stretched toward the doorway. Oh, my goodness. I know. So now, now, how has this changed? You said you grew up in a family that non-believers. Oh, maybe not non-believers, but just no, no religion or... Uh, yeah. Okay. Like we were Protestant. Sure, yeah. sure. How has this changed your personal belief? I mean, do you believe now in reincarnation? Do you believe there's another place? Do you believe we'll be physical there or just spirits? Or do you believe... What are your beliefs now after, after you know, all these changes in your life and writing the book? I think that I'm really comfortable now with the idea that our minds separate from our bodies mm-hmm. and go into a larger kind of almost like an ocean of consciousness. So mm-hmm. I feel like my feeling is that based on interviewing people is, is that we kind of become part of a a collective shared consciousness almost. So it's like mm-hmm. energy pool. Yeah. So we still have our own perceptions and our capacity for perceptions of as ourselves, but we're also not separated anymore. So it's like mm-hmm. this this realm is where we have a false idea that we're all individuals separated from each other. And then mm-hmm. everyone I talked to who had near death experience said that they remember, like they go back into this kind of shared world of, and they and they're like, as one woman put it to me, she said, "I felt like I was." I felt like I I been lost for centuries, and I found my way home. Wow. So, and like, so, do you believe that's that eternal? I mean, getting a bit religious, but do you believe that just goes on and on, or you come back as a different form? I don't know. I mean, I I I I think that we probably. I don't I have no idea, actually. I mean, that. Yeah. What well, none what of I us do. do I guess so. We get there. Yeah, I mean, one one of the things I did come to understand that I didn't get before was mm-hmm. that um, time does not have the same um, kind of forward motion um, quality that we have in this world. So it's like when you're when you're when you leave your body, you're outside of time. So the whole idea mm-hmm. of eternity, people are like, I don't want to sit around for eternity. Like that's just weird. <laughs> there is no eternity in that sense. Like it's outside of time. Right. When you leave your butt. God forbid. What Whatever. would people do without their iPhones? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not afraid of death anymore. I guess that's the main point. Yes. I, I said that again death. to my sister, whom I'm so close to, like the way you had been with your sister. Yeah. You know, we're just, uh, we. my nickname is Left Lung. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> that. well, we got that because she had a dreadful car accident. Someone hit her when she was 28 and her lungs collapsed. And so... It just, that was the nickname, you know, when she survived the accident, it was left lung. And um, so, so anyway, um, having said that, I, um, we were talking about the same thing, I, I, about belief and how all these dreams have actually helped me with my spiritual belief that I do believe that I'm, I have a calmness about wherever I'm going afterwards, you know, but reading your book really solidified it because I thought, gee, I'm not alone here. There's so many people. Yeah. Now, now, that's another question. Do you think people who are in the arts are more intuitive and they have, uh, you know, a higher sense? Or do you think that it happens to certain kinds of people, believers, or not as much to non-believers? 
I, I think it's, I, I mean, I remember my sister, my, my mom said to me, you know, when Catherine had the sense of the presence of dad, mom, mom said to me, well, he died right beside me in the bed, and I didn't notice. <laughs> like, oh, I know. She went to sleep. Come? I read that in the book. She just patted him on the back and went to sleep. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, how come, why did it happen to Catherine and not to me? And, of course, that's a question that people ask, right? Like, they, they, the studies show that about 50% of the bereaved population has an experience of after-death communication. 50% across the globe, like in every culture. So what about the other 50%? Why doesn't that happen to them? Right. Um, and, and we just don't know. I mean, that's, again, that, you know, where's, where could we find the funding to actually start to research that? Is it, is it something about the differences in the, in the way our brains are structured? Is it something about, you know, our need? Is it something about our need to be contacted? You know, Catherine would have needed dad's reassurance a lot more in a way than my mom did because she was so afraid of where she was going. Right, you know, of did, course, did, with did the cancer. Come to us because we need them to, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, these are mysterious questions. They are. And and uh, I, I remember last year I had a bout of vertigo just right in the middle of the pandemic, and I had to go into the hospital. You know, blind and dizzy is not a fun thing, okay, at the same time. Right. And when I came home, I was really kind of scared myself the first night, and there... I was praying to my parents, and bam, the vision of my father, exactly what he looked like standing by my bed, just came in a flash, and I thought, oh, my God. And a week later, you know, my mom and I talked on the phone. She lived in Ottawa, and we talked every day, uh, all the time that I lived in California. And then a few days later, in my left ear, as I was just awakening that morning, I hear, as if she's on the phone in my ear, hi, honey, I'm here. It's me. It's mom. And she's just, she called me on the phone in my ear and then she was gone. And it was just, you know, things like that. I'm sorry, but I, I, I just believe there's a direct line sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely agree. But some of the, the, you know, the, um, non-believers, the skeptics would say, well, that's your subconscious and that's your, that's a dream or that's a vision. That's a hallucination. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of evidence in that area too, but for me, no, no it's isn't. so real. That's, well, let's talk that, about that, that, that then. Yeah. So that's the, the other thing I wanted to do was I wanted to look in the book, um, because I have a background in investigative journalism. I was, you know, I was like, okay, well, so, um, scientists say, no, this is a visual hallucination. So I'm like, really? Well, how do you know that? How do you know that this is a visual? If you're going to dismiss these experiences, are you basing it on stuff that you found to be true? And it turns out that they haven't. No, at all, right? So they, they still don't even remotely understand the neuroscientific basis of visual hallucinations, even in other cases, like cases where people are, you know, like with Louis Body's dementia or whatever, like different. Right. They, there, there is no scientific progress on actually being able to rebut the spiritual basis of these experiences. It's all Interesting. just something that that one well one day science will show you that you're wrong. Right, right, and they they can't disprove it. They can't. I mean, there's exactly. so many fascinating accounts in the book, like uh, Amelia Earhart. She always flew with a presence. She said she never flew alone. Yeah, yeah, especially those cases I find so interesting because they're not related to grief. 
So you talk about... Right. Psychiatrists will talk about grief hallucinations. But then suddenly there's all these other people who are having this presence experience who aren't, who aren't grieving, right? Right. So they're just in, in, um, in extreme or dramatic environments where they kind of... Well, in, in some cases, they'll, they'll have the presence will actually materialize when, you know, one guy was caught in an avalanche and he, he had like, I think, I don't know, like every bone in his body was yes. broken, but he had to crawl a kilometer to get to help and, and, you know, he could barely move and a presence materialized and accompanied him and actually directed him. Like these, I remember that for like three hours. Right? And then the presence yeah. was gone, they said, once he was lifted to, you know, to a helicopter yeah. or once they got help. Yeah, and so, you know, you would say two, 200 years ago, we might have called that a guardian angel. Yes, yes, yes. And and in some cases, there was actual, uh, they could see visually, they could see the, the angel or the, the, um, yeah. the presence. Yeah, Not just right. a feeling, but there was that one where the man and woman experienced it, and the woman was by their bedside. They, she looked yeah. exactly the same, yeah, but they didn't discuss it. That's right. So that was a case where they, they were stranded on Mount Everest, a husband yes. and wife yes. climbed the team. Mm-hmm. And, and, and both of them were attended to by this quiet, elderly Tibetan woman. Neither of them mentioned it to each other because they thought they were hallucinating. And it wasn't until, like, months later that they realized that they had both seen her. That is so fascinating. And to think they saw the same person and they didn't even... Can you imagine that night over dinner? You saw two? (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Give me another glass of wine. (laughs) I know. Oh, my God. I mean, that's really... That's something, you know? Yeah. And 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 it also speaks to how taboo this stuff is. Yes. Yes. Oh yes. You don't want to tell people. They think, oh, other. she's you're right. She's one of those psychics or those you know, um, you know, crazy people. You know, who believes in aliens. Yeah. So for me, the most important thing that came out of my book was I discovered that I was giving people an opportunity to step forward and say, "Me too. This happened to me too." Yes. Oh, obviously, you, know? you had so many accounts. My God, it goes on. Your research is so incredible. I mean, that that book is just action-packed, you know, with story after story. <laughs> I love the one about the, um, I guess the woman had lost her harp or something, and it was some sort of a, you oh, know, yeah. they, yes, can you tell that story? Yeah, so this was a psychiatrist in California, and who, you know, was very materialistic in her understanding of the way the world worked, you know, clockwork universe. And um, her daughter lost this very, very precious musical heart in, in uh, San Francisco. And the police couldn't help, and they couldn't figure out, you know, whether, well, it had been stolen, but they couldn't figure out, you know, how to get it back. And finally, somebody said to her, well, you know, you could try a douser. And she was like, what's a doubter? And they was like, well, you know, it's an old-fashioned old traditional technique for finding things, finding water. And, and she thought, well, that's ridiculous. Why would I do that? And they said, well, what do you have to lose, right? You can't, you've, you've hit a dead end in finding this harp. So she got in touch with this guy. He was in um, Arkansas, I think. Older man, you know, long history of local dousing, you know, for farmers looking for water and stuff. 
And she said, well, listen, this is, you know, I just, you know, I don't think this is going to work, but I just want you to know that my daughter's harp was stolen in San Francisco. And, you know, do you think you could find it? She didn't think anything was going to happen. And he drew her a map and he sent it to her. He was, he never left Arkansas, but he sent her a map of San Francisco and he identified it right down to the block in Oakland. So incredible. Where the harp was. And And she retrieved it. And she retrieved it, and this caused her to, like, lose her mind, and she wound up writing this book about, like, you know, wait a minute, what if we psychiatrists are all wrong about how the world works? I love it. Absolutely love it. You know, I, I, I lost a very precious um, necklace that was given to me by my grandmother in Winnipeg, you know, when I was about 17, and... I, I I would love to hire that guy because I never found it. <laughs> oh my God! My we've all lost something like that, right? Yes, we have. Yeah, yeah we've all lost something like that. Well, but there's um, all these ancient ways of knowing, and that's yes, the point. Yes, yes. Now, were you always a psychic believer, or astrology, or intuitive, or into any of that? No, I mean I was always curious about it. Yeah, like You're I pretty... love the fact. Mm-hmm. I want the world. I want the world to be mysterious. Mm-hmm. That's always been true. Like I've never, I've never been an atheist. I've never been like that kind of skeptic. But I just didn't. It just didn't really come up in my work yeah. or my life. Yeah. yeah. No. I mean, you've written for the New York Times, for Reader's Digest, for uh, so many different publications, and you and and also, as you said, done work in the psychology area. Now, stem cell. So you have a fascinating yeah. background. Tell us about the, yeah. that book, just a few minutes, for some of our listeners. Right. So the reason I met Kristen um, is last year in California, in L.A., was because I'm working on a book with a uh, doctor um, in Toronto who pioneering some uh, research around stem cell therapy for, in his case, he's working on um, lower back pain and knee, knee injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually just organized, uh, Kristen, the, um, the largest... Um, uh, ongoing clinical trial for that that specific using um, what are they called Me- mesoschemal stem cells? I think right? so. Yeah, MSCs um, for for knee and, and knee and back pain. Um, he's he's getting that up and running, and it's going to be the, the the biggest clinical trial that's been done yet on on uh, trying to find the real world data on this stuff. Wonderful. Um, and and so he he. He, he got in touch with me and said, you know, can you help me write this book? Because I really want people to understand the what's what's happening here and how revolutionary it is and how they can avoid snake oil treatment and how they can understand where, you know, where it, where it is going to help them and help patients advocate for their own right to have these treatments and not just get pushed back on by bench scientists who are like, well, that's not possible, so we're not going to support that. Um, and yeah, I, he's so excited. He's so excited about this area of medicine. Oh, it sounds like the research that must be going into that book. Yeah. Well, that's harder for me because I don't understand. I was going to say, my God, (laughs) it's a little intimidating, but for you, nothing surprises (laughs) me. You could take it on, you know, you've done all the subjects. No, it sounds fascinating. (laughs) I can't wait till it comes out, you know, and, um, 
and your other book, High Anxiety. I, I have that on my wish list. Uh, fascinating. But, you know, because we have only limited amount of time, is there anything else you want to talk about with Opening Heaven's Door for the listeners to leave them with, you know, a couple of bullet points or a story? or? Um. I, I, I just think the, what's what's really important is to hold on to your experience and not let people um, explain. So it you're away. crazy. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you're not crazy. It happens to so many of us. We're not all a bunch of big foolish people who are being wishful thinkers. Um, some of the most recent research that I've been doing on this about people who become aware of someone who's died before they find out through the phone call or the email. Um, actually completely refutes the idea that this is a grief hallucination because the most common person that you become aware of dying is an older male relative, a father, a grandfather, an uncle, Mm. not a child. So if it were a grief hallucination, then the most likely people to have it, you would think, would be the parents grieving desperately over the loss of a child. Right, but that is not what happens with these experiences. It is more often a, a, a fully mature adult who's coming to reassure you. A parent. Mm-hmm. A parent. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Why don't we tell people your website and the name of the book again? <clears throat> The name of the book I had is, to take a breath because I was thinking of so many, as I said, in our next conversation <laughs> when I see you in person about some of the things that I've experienced just before my dad died and whatnot. So you've really taken me back, you know, uh, in yeah. memory lane. Yeah. So it's very interesting. So so let's tell people about your website. So I think my website is uh, www, whatever, three Ws. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> patriciapearson.net hmm? and that's where the information is about my books and my background and then um, the name of this book is Opening Heaven's Door What the Dying May Be Trying to Tell Us About Where They're Going Beautiful, and you have now seven books on Audible right, so for all our, some of our listeners so. who are yeah. visually impaired, about seven Yes, that's right and actually my, my most recent one the one about my high school boyfriend and I solving the murder of his sister just came out in, in the U.S. in early May. Oh, great. Okay, I have to add that to my wish list, too. And I loved uh, with Opening Heaven's Door, you did a beautiful job narrating, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. That was fun. That was fun doing the narration for that. Yeah, well, you're just yeah. perfect. Perfect for the job. So, Yay. you know, unfortunately, we're, we've, you know, only have so much time, but I want to tell all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a fascinating conversation. Wonderful book. Couldn't put it down. Opening Heaven's Door by Patricia Pearson. What the dead, what the, I'm sorry, what the, um, finish it up for me, Patricia. With the, <laughs> what the dying. What the dying. Don't call them dead. What the dying may be time to tell us, right? <laughs> Boy, I made it through this far. Anyway, I am Kristen McDonald, <laughs> tongue-tied today for Second Vision, and I hope all of you have a blessed day. And, Patricia, it's been a real joy. Thank you so much for this interview. Oh, thank you so much for talking to me, Kristen. It was fun. Oh, my pleasure. Can't wait to see you again soon. <laughs>